0: So uh, no no problems, I, you know, it seemed like everything went smooth, and uh, you know how much of a conversationalist Charlie is, so <laughs> you don't get much out of him. Uh, but uh, anyway, that's what's going on um, with us, so I'm just uh, making sure the dog gets out. we got to make sure the trash gets up to the road for the trash day. You know, all, all the really important stuff I'm left to do. So did everybody get a uh, sheet, handout sheet? That was in the back there. That's uh, important because we're going to be looking at the book of Ezekiel this evening. So let me uh, let me open in a word of prayer and we'll get going. And the first thing I'm going to do before we jump into Ezekiel is I want to review. Since we've been away for three weeks, I want to go back and I want to review a little bit. So let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us and your kindness and care for us. We're so thankful that you loved us, love us. We're thankful that you gave your son uh, to die for our sins on the cross. And so, Father, we uh, praise and honor you this evening, and we ask for your help as we look at your word. It's our desire to understand it correctly, understand it accurately, and uh, Lord, we want to know uh, what you're doing and more about who you are. So um, we're thankful that you have given us the Holy Spirit to help us uh, in these areas and that we have your word that we can look at, that we can study. And so, Father, we commit this time to you this evening, and we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. So as uh, we have talked about several different times, but it's been a while, so I think about the very beginning of this study on the kingdom of God, where I talked about the kingdom of God being the theme of the Bible. The kingdom of God as the theme of the Bible, and the more I have studied this particular topic, the more I have uh, read what people have written and listened to what others have said, I'm more and more convinced that this is the correct view, that the kingdom of God is the theme of the Bible. And so what does it mean? What does it mean that the kingdom of God is the theme of the Bible? Well, that simply means that the entire Bible and what it reveals can be seen as a whole when we view it through the lens of the kingdom of God. And so when you think about the kingdom of God and then you start thinking about the entire uh, range of the scriptures, you start to see how all these parts come together into one unified whole and uh, This answers some very important questions that every believer should have such questions like Well, how does the Old Testament fit with the New Testament? We get answers for that if we view it from the perspective of the kingdom of God How do the Jews relate to Gentiles? How does the nation of Israel fit with the church, relate to the church? How does Jesus, the Messiah, fit with the nation of Israel? How does Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, relate to the church? How do we explain all the diversities presented in the Bible as moving towards one unified point? It's all working together. It's all moving to one point, one direction in the future. I think the answer to all these can be found in this theme of the kingdom of God. And uh, so, just uh, just want us to understand it is the unifying theme. Now, that doesn't mean it's the the purpose. Okay, it doesn't mean it's the Purpose of everything, because purpose denotes some type of activity. It's the theme. It's you. You look at it. You look at the Bible through this theme. The purpose is something that's taking place uh, within the text of Scripture itself. So um, let's let's think about this just real briefly. Um, let's just think about this so we can see. How this theme of the kingdom of God does uh, work out. So the Bible begins with God doing what? Creating, right? He's, he's creating. So, so in the beginning, God created. So what's the assumption? In Genesis 1-1, what does Genesis 1-1 already assume to be true? Well, it tells us God created the heaven and the earth, but before that, what does it assume to be true? God existed. God exists, right? So before God can create, he's got to be. And so since God is the creator... He is also the sovereign, or I, I would prefer the word, the king. He's the king. And um, uh, so God is the king over his creation. That's the beginning of the Bible. When you go to the end of the Bible, you find that once again, God the Father is ruling and reigning as the king. So what we're talking about mostly in this study that we're doing now is what's happening in between. What's happening in between uh, these two points? Well, why don't you just go to Genesis 1 here real quick. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. But uh, just... Genesis 1. And we'll look at this very briefly. So we see in Genesis 1, chapter, or Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. God is acting as the king. He's acting as the creator over his creation. He is ruling personally. This is God the Father, is ruling personally and directly. Uh, over his creation. But as you get to verse 26, really chapter 1, verse 26, and I would say probably through chapter 2, verse 25, we see here that God assigns to Adam or to the man, uh, he assigns to him the authority and the responsibility to rule over the earth. And so we use the term mediatorial ruler. Co-regent would be another way that we could put it. He is ruling for God over the earth. So look at verse 26, chapter 1 verse 26. Uh So God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So there's something about man that connects him to God in in a way that no other creature is connected to God, including angels made in the image and likeness of God. Uh, The second part of verse 26, God says, let them, that's man, have dominion over the fish, over the birds, over the cattle, over every creeping thing. So let them have dominion. That's that's an active word. That's a ruling word. Then he goes on and talks about filling the earth in verse 28. He says, fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, That word subdue has a It even has the idea of forcefulness to it. It has to do it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds, and so on and so forth. And so we see here that God has assigned to Adam in particular, the first man, this ruling status. Now, when God assigned this ruling status to man... Did God cease being God? Did he cease being the ruler of the universe, the sovereign? No, no, no. Not at all. So Adam is ruling under God. That's why we call him a mediatorial ruler. He is ruling under God and he's ruling the earth. If you glance over to the next chapter in verse 15... You see here where it talks about God taking Adam and putting him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. Again, this is the act of the ruler. So God is putting him specifically in the Garden of Eden and Adam is going to be king. We'll just call him king over this area. So, as we go on in chapter 2, we come to verse 19 and 20, we see Adam has the job of naming the animals. This is another activity of someone who is the ruler. He gets to name. When you name something, that something comes under your authority and responsibility. So the whole point I want you to see here is that up to chapter 1, verse 25, God is ruling directly and immediately over his creation. But then he gives this responsibility to Adam, where Adam becomes the mediatorial uh, ruler. He is ruling for God on the earth. But then as we come to chapter 3, of course, we know something tragic happens. Yes, Stanley. Um probably English. <laughs> I, I have no idea. Um I think uh I think our best guess would be it, it is what I guess they would call it uh, Indo European language group because the earliest languages we know about come from the Fertile Crescent area and it's not quite like Hebrew. It's distinct from Hebrew in the Semitic languages and it's uh, very close to um, what would be like uh, a, San- a Sanskrit um, Hittite. I mean, nobody speaks these things today, but it would be very close to the. So they're Indo-European. What we call Indo-European language. These language groups that kind of cover part of Europe and part of Asia. Right. Yeah. He could. I mean, when God created Adam and when Eve was made, they were fully functioning persons adult persons <laughs> right <laughs> quite quite extensive and uh, we're not sure what what that language would be but but uh, what we do know is there was language and if you got language it also means you can communicate and so to go along with that is this amazing idea that God and man could communicate to one another at this point pretty pretty amazing so adam could understand and uh, he could communicate back with god jim well the, everyone spoke the same language but it's about and that's about how correct correct right and that's where Abram, I think I might even talk a little bit about this, but uh, at, at least Ab- Abraham's immediate ancestors were probably at the Tower of Babel. I mean, if you go through and you do the chronology, uh, so it's very this very interesting thing to think about. But in chapter 3 of Genesis, we run into this uh, tragic event, the event... Of sin. And I want us to note that sin changed, but it did not remove Adam's mediatorial role as the ruler. It changed it, it did not remove it. As you can see in chapter 3, verses uh, 16 through 17. Actually, 17 through 19. 17 through 19. Um, part of the change that takes place is that uh, man is now going to face resistance from the ground. You know, in his rule over the earth, the ground itself, the land, that stuff under our feet, Adam's going to face resistance. He's going to have to deal with weeds. You know, before he didn't have to deal with weeds, there's no pulling weeds in the garden before this. Now he's going to have to pull weeds. Um, we also find in verses 22 through 24 that God expels Adam and Eve from the garden. Now that means that there's at least one portion of the earth where Adam is no longer allowed to rule over. He's expelled from the Garden of Eden, so it's changed it it, it, it doesn't it, this role that Adam has as this mediatorial ruler isn't removed, but it is changed and so what happens as a result of sin is this mediatorial rule all of a sudden becomes harder, and depending on how you interpret um, the end of genesis three sixteen where it says Jesus uh, or the Lord speaking to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you. I mean depending on how you understand that. Adam's rule it, it hasn't just changed with the earth itself, but he's going to have trouble with his wife. So he's going to have trouble with other people. So his rule is going to become more difficult with humans and with the earth itself but he still has the rule. God has not removed that from him. And so as we continue on in Genesis, Genesis chapter 4 through Genesis chapter 8, we see that man in general and probably the descendants of Seth in particular function in the role as mediatorial rulers over the face of the the earth. So, in between Genesis four and Genesis eight, it's about sixteen hundred years, and the operation of the Earth continues on just as is described in Genesis chapter three. There's going to have these problems they're going to have these difficulties that are going to go on as we come to Genesis chapter nine. I told you we weren't going to dwell uh too much on any one thing here. In Genesis chapter 9 through chapter 11, uh, the role of the mediatorial ruler changes from an individual man to a societal government. And if you look at, uh, if you just go back a couple chapters to chapter 6, we see the reason for this. What's the reason for this change that's going to take place? We see it in verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5, is the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's not how God designed it, but this was the effect of sin. We see in verse 8 that only Noah, only Noah was found to not fit the description of man in verse 5. So in verse 5 it tells us that man in general was wicked. Only Noah is exempt from that description. And as we come to chapter 9, we see that uh, this is after the flood. This is after the flood event where God judges uh, the earth. Uh, verse 1 and verse 7, we have uh, the, the continuation of God's instructions that he gave to Adam. So if you look at 9.1, it says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In verse 7, very similar, it says, And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Uh, So there's a continuity with the instructions that God has given man all the way from Adam even to Noah. But again, while the mediatorial rule remains, there are certain things that have changed within it. So chapter 9, verse 2. Chapter 9, verse 2. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all moving, uh, all that moves on the earth and on all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. So man is still exercising superiority and dominion over the animals, but they're not going to cooperate. They're going to be afraid of man. And of course this too is where man's... um, given the uh, right to eat meat we see that in verse 3 and so again just as this there was a change after sin with Adam's rule where the ground was going to produce weeds and it seems like he was going to have difficulty in the relationship with his wife here after the flood even though god is continuing man's mediatorial role as ruler over the earth things on the earth are going to change. Animals now are going to be afraid of man and man's going to be able to eat animals. If you would just glance real quick, this is kind of my first rabbit trail, at verse 20, 920. Verse 920. I thought this was very interesting. I haven't, didn't really notice it before. And Noah began to be a farmer. Literally, it's not farmer. Literally, it is a man of the earth. Man of, we might say, a man of the soil. He be, he be began to be a farmer and he planted a vineyard. Now, that the fact that he planted a vineyard tells us what it means to be a man of the earth. Um, so, it, it's interesting. This is an interesting statement about Noah because... If he begins to be a farmer here, what was he before? You know, what what was he before? Well, <laughs> he's a shipbuilder. <laughs> he, he was a shipwright. Well, at least he built one ship. <laughs> That's it. But anyway, interesting question. He began to be a farmer here. Um, that's got nothing to do with the kingdom of God, but it's still interesting to notice some of these things. Now, as we continue on, of course, we know the story. We get the genealogy in chapter 10. As we get to chapter 11 and verses 1 and 2, we see another expression of man's rebellion against the Lord's instructions to fill the earth and bring forth abundantly in it and to multiply. Right. Instead of doing that, what man does is they congregate. Man congregates and becomes proud, and he builds a tower to make a name for himself. And I think this was the idea of building this tower was they were trying to elevate themselves not only in their own mind, but also physically. So psychologically and physically, they were trying to elevate themselves, putting themselves above the station that God had set them. And so what does God do? And Jim already alluded to this earlier. God scatters them. He confuses uh, their language. And he does that because they would not scatter themselves. They would not fill the earth. By the way, I think there's an interesting parallel to what we see here and the uh, early church. Now, it's not an exact parallel, okay? It's something of a parallel. Part of what the early church was to do, according to Acts 1, 8, was to be witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, the ends of the earth. So what kind of picture does that get us? Were they to congregate? Or were they to spread out? They were to spread out. Is that what they did? No, it wasn't what they did. In fact, you got to go all the way to chapter 8 to see that it was persecution that forced the church to spread out of Jerusalem. Persecution. So God spread them out. God's the one who had to spread them out. So interesting parallel here between what happened at the Tower of Babel and what happened in the early church. So there seems to be only about 300 years between the time of the flood and the Tower of Babel. I'm guessing there, but it seems to be about 300 years. And um, this means that the Lord scattered the people over the face of the earth sometime between the flood and the birth of Abram. Where in there it happened that this occurred between the flood and the birth of Abraham. When did the Tower of Babel actually take place? We don't know, but it, obviously it did happen in between those two points, and that's about 300 years. So it's interesting how that's that's really compacted together. So a lot of times we don't think of them as being that close together. So what happens at the Tower of Babel shows us the failure of society's ability to provide the proper ruling for man. You know, at the beginning of chapter 9, God puts the authority for capital punishment in the hands of men. Okay, not a man, but in the hands of men. And so men as a group are ruling, and uh, this has failed. Because when men got together, what did they do? They just colluded together to rebel against God. By the way, this is uh, one reason why we can uh, conclude that society and societal well-being is not the solution to all the problems on the earth. You know, when, when men get together... They are not disposed to doing what is right. When men get together, they're disposed to ingraining themselves and embedding themselves even more into the sin that they're already involved in. So here's a summary at this point. God appoints man as the mediatorial ruler, that's Adam, and he failed. That's the fall. God continued to work with individual men as mediatorial rulers, And they failed. We have the flood. God appointed society as the role of mediatorial ruler, and it failed, the Tower of Babel. Now God is once again going to do something different. He's going to go back to working with another individual man to bring about his mediatorial ruler. So this gets into the account of Abraham. So Genesis chapter 12, God chooses Abraham to be the one man through whom he's going to bring both the nation and the person who would be the perfect mediatorial ruler. He's going to bring the nation about that's going to produce this perfect ruler. And uh, so we have the person coming from the line of Abraham. Of course, we know that that nation is the nation of Israel and that their king will be the mediatorial ruler. The person that will come from Abraham, we know, will be Jesus the Messiah, who will be the perfect mediatorial ruler when he comes into his kingdom. And as one goes through the rest of the Old Testament, part of what it is doing is showing us how God is working to bring about His plan for His perfect mediatorial ruler. It's part of what the Old Testament is telling us. Is God has made this plan and He's working this plan out and um, man can't thwart it, even the wickedness of men. I mean, think about all the wicked kings that were in Israel and Judah. They can't knock God's plan off the rails. In the New Testament, we see how the church and the Gentiles fit in with what God is doing with regard to this coming mediatorial ruler, this perfect ruler. And so ultimately, history... Uh, it comes very close to its end with the mediatorial kingdom. And that is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We we call it the millennium a lot. That thousand-year reign of Christ, where Christ is the perfect mediatorial ruler. He is the last Adam. Why do you think he's called the last Adam? First Adam was the first mediator. Christ will be the last mediator because after Christ's thousand-year rule, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us he hands his kingdom over to the Father. And now God the Father rules directly and personally over his creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And that is in what we call the eternal state. Okay, so that's the big picture of the kingdom, the idea of the kingdom, and how it runs from the beginning to the end. So in the beginning, God is personally and directly ruling over his creation, and at the end, God is ruling personally and directly over his creation. In between, God has appointed man to rule over his creation. And we see this cycle of... Men ruling and failing, ruling and failing, ruling and failing. And God then has this plan where he's going to bring about his perfect ruler on earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes as king and establishes his kingdom. So it's very interesting to think about. You start with Adam. Then you get failure. God starts over, so to speak. He starts over with a man, Noah. Failure. And God chooses another man. chooses Abraham. And he establishes this covenant with Abraham in which his nation is going to be the nation that he will bless, and it's going to be through that nation but the rest of the earth, the peoples of the earth, will be blessed. So uh, this is all part of the kingdom. Okay, so does that uh, kind of bring us up to thinking in terms of the kingdom again? And, of course, uh, what we've been doing over the past how many weeks is we've been looking at uh, the Old Testament Right now in particular of how we see this idea of the kingdom being uh, displayed and working itself out through these Old Testament books. So turn to Ezekiel. So we're in the prophets and we're taking these prophets in a roughly uh, chronological order. And so we're in Ezekiel now. And uh, we're going to. We're going to start in uh, chapter 8. We're going to start in chapter 8. You can see that on your notes. So this uh, book of Ezekiel can be divided into three large sections. In chapters 1 through 24, we have God's judgment on Judah. In chapters 25 through 32, we have God's judgment on Gentile nations. Then in chapter 33, to the end of the book, we have God's blessing on restored Israel. Okay, so we got judgment on Judah, judgment on Gentile nations, and then God's blessing on restored Israel. So in in chapters 8 through 11, we have the account of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. Okay, the glory of the Lord is leaving the temple. And we might ask, well, what in the world does that have to do with the kingdom? Because when God established the nation of Israel, okay, and so the nation of Israel is being established as they come out of Exodus. uh, Before, or come out of Exodus, come out of Egypt in the Exodus. Uh, Before they come out of Egypt, They are just a big people group. They're essentially a very large tribe. Everybody's related to Jacob. Remember how many people go down to Egypt? Seventy. Seventy go down to Egypt. They're all related to Jacob. They're all Jacob. It is Jacob's family who goes down to Egypt. And the Lord blesses them, and they multiply greatly while they're in Egypt. And so as they come out of Egypt, they become a nation. And Moses is the ruler of that nation. And and this is God's chosen people. And God is going to be their king. He's going to be the one who rules over them. But interestingly enough, God also makes allowance for them to have an earthly king. And it's going to be through this nation, the nation of Israel, that God is going to exercise His rule and plan for the world. And so Israel becomes this idea of the mediator, the mediatorial ruler over the earth, especially with the king of Israel acting as the mediatorial ruler. And so God's Um, glory rests with the nation. It's on the nation of Israel. Now, where did it rest in particular? When when the nation of Israel comes out and they go to Mount uh, Sinai and they get the Ten Commandments and all that, what else were they given when they got the Ten Commandments? They were told how to build the tabernacle. They are given all the details of the tabernacle. And uh, so you got the tabernacle. Now, what's the center point of the tabernacle? The absolute central, it's not, the, it's not physically or spatially the center, but it, it is the focal point of the tabernacle. What, what is it? It's a piece of furniture. What is it? The Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. What dwelt on the Ark of the Covenant? The glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord settled on the Ark of the Covenant. And that was displayed how? How did the people know the glory of the Lord was there? The cloud, the the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. So keep that in mind. Now in Ezekiel chapter 8, the glory of the Lord is going to be departing the temple. Okay, So the glory has been... There, from the tabernacle on, and now the glory is going to depart. So look at here real quick, chapter 8, verse 1, And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I, that's Ezekiel, sat in my house, he's got his own house, with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. So this is September 17th, 592 B.C., September 17th, 592 B.C. That's the sixth year, six-month, fifth day. It's the sixth year of Jehoiachin's exile. That's the sixth year. Okay. This is 14 months after Ezekiel had his first vision in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So 14 months, exactly 14 months after. And as you get down to verse 3 here, we see the idolatry of the people. It says here, He stretched out the form of a hand, and he took me by the lock of my hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate in the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy where this image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. Now, this is a reference to an idol of jealousy that we'll see repeated uh, a little bit later on here. So we, we get the image here that Ezekiel is at home in Babylon. He's with the elders of Judah. These are the elders. These are the leaders of the nation in exile. And, in a vision, the Holy Spirit brings Ezekiel to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court somewhere close to the uh the inner court, but he's on the north side he's on the north side, so that's not the main entrance the main entrance is on the east side, so he's on the north side, and so Ezekiel is probably standing in the outer court, looking in towards the inner court by uh, the north gate, and what he sees there is this idol, the seat of the image of jealousy, this idol of uh, jealousy that is uh, that he sees there. And um, this is probably something like an ashtoreth something like that, and uh, you'll remember maybe, from our study of the kings. And we had King Manasseh, and uh, he he wasn't that good of a guy, but at the end of his life, he repented. And one of the things he did is he uh, took down these idol-worshipping poles, you know, the poles, the Asherah poles that they would use to worship. He took it down. Um, But then these poles got put back up and they were removed again and burned by King Josiah. But apparently someone had a new one made and put back up again. And I think the fact that when Ezekiel sees these things, it's an indication that the children of Israel have continued to indulge in idolatry. Even as uh, their kings have at times repented and had reformed, the people of the nation of Israel had continued to practice idolatry, and and so I think that's what we're the image that we're seeing here. This is what is being. shown to Ezekiel here, is the great idolatry of the people. Now, in verse 4, we're introduced to the glory of the Lord. It says, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there. It's at the temple, like the vision I saw in the plain. So this is where uh, the glory of God is. It is still at the temple. But then we come to verse 5, And Ezekiel is looking there in the north, and he sees the idolatry of the people, again, that's indicated by this idol of jealousy. Uh, Then he said to me, son of man, lift up your eyes now towards the north. So I lifted up my eyes towards the north, and there north of the altar gate was this image of jealousy, this idol of jealousy in the entrance. So it's fixated on this thing because of its its whole representation. It is an affront to God. It's an abomination to the Lord. And so here we have it's the idolatry of the people. Then in verses 7 through 13, we see the idolatry of the leaders. The idolatry of the leaders. It says in verse 7, So he brought me to the door of the court and when I looked there was a hole in the wall then he said to me son of man dig into the wall then I dug into the wall and there was a door and he said to me go in and see the wicked abominations which they they are doing so who's the people who would be doing something in the inner court who's who's the ones who actually worked in the inner court Starts with a P. Priests. Priests. Okay? So it says, See the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw, and there, every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols. So I would take that as probably there's unclean animals in there. And all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. And there stood before them... Seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst stood Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, a thick cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, son of man, have you seen? That's a key phrase in this chapter have you seen? And he says, have you seen the elders of the house of Israel, uh, what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the room of his idols? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And so they're committing great abomination. So Ezekiel looks in, he looks into the inner court, digs through the wall and he finds unclean animals and more idols and more idolatry there. He sees the leaders of the nation. He sees that they have abandoned God and now they are worshiping idols. Ezekiel knows one of these men by sight. Jeazaniah, however you say his name. He knows him by sight. This man's family plays an important role in the nation of Israel at this time. His father, who we're told here is Shaphan. He's the one who found the book of the law during Josiah's reign. Second Kings twenty two verses three through thirteen. Shaphan had four sons. Son number one is Ahiachim. He was sent by Josiah to the prophetess Huldah to verify the scroll. And he protected Jeremiah from being condemned to death. That's Ahiakim Second son is Gemariah. Gemariah. He urged King Jehoiakim to not destroy Jeremiah's scroll. Remember that? Account where the scroll was bought, brought to Jehoiakim and he's, he starts cutting it up and burning it. And Gemariah is the son of Shaphan who says, don't do that. The third son is Elasa, Elasa, who was the courier of Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon. He's the one who carried Jeremiah's letter to Babylon. And then we have this cat here, Jaazania. Unlike his three brothers, who were faithful to the Lord, this man participated in idol worship in the temple. Idol worship in the temple. So he's the unfaithful brother here. Ezekiel knows this guy by sight. But the family had such a prominent role. He knows who he is. He, he, says, he sees him. He gives him his name. Interestingly enough, interestingly enough, in the history of Israel, Shaphan had two prominent grandsons. The first grandson is the son of Ahiakim. His name is Gedaliah. He was appointed governor of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar. So we read about Gedaliah in our Bible. The second grandson is Micaiah, and he's the son of Gemariah. He's the one who told the court officials that Jeremiah's scroll was read by Baruch. So this is an important family, a family so important that Ezekiel would recognize a member of this family by uh, sight. And so this particular one that's mentioned here, Jeazaniah, is an unfaithful son. He's unfaithful. The rest of them are faithful. And so I think he ends up being named here because Ezekiel surprised to see him. Like this this family has been serving the Lord. And and here's one of the family. Boom. What's this guy doing participating in idol worship? So we have the idolatry of the leader. So all this is going to be important because we're going to see that it eventually leads to the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. So the people are committing idolatry. The leaders are committing idolatry. In verses 16 through 17... Excuse me. Verses 14 through 15, we see that the women are committing idolatry. Okay? They're there weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz. That's an idol. Okay? They're they're weeping over it, this thing. In verses... 16 through 17 we see that the men are committing idolatry so the the initial thing we see is all the people are committing idolatry and then the Lord shows Ezekiel how each part of the nation from the leaders to the women to the men are all committing idolatry and then in verse 18 we're told because of this the Lord is going to act Verse 18 says, Therefore I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. So the Lord is going to act, and he's going to bring punishment on them. Now, as we get to chapter 9, we see that the glory of the Lord starts to move. It starts to move. Notice in verse 3 that the glory of the Lord goes up from the cherubs who were on the ark to the threshold. Verse 3. Now the glory of the Lord had gone up from the cherub where it had been. So remember on the top of the ark is the, the lid is the mercy seat and there are two cherubs, cherubim, two cherubs there. This is where the glory of the Lord resided. So when it says, going up from the cherub, it's talking about he left the mercy seat. The glory of the Lord left the mercy seat where it had been. And it goes to the threshold of the temple. Okay, it goes to the threshold of the temple. And uh, what we see in the following verses here, uh, all the way to the end of the chapter, is that the Lord... Commands for the execution of the idolatrous people. And so it mentions uh, these beings. We see the first one mentioned here at the end of chapter 3. It says, And he called to the man clothed with linen, who had a writer's inkhorn at his side. So this is one of them, and, and so he's got a this uh, pen. Okay, this is the precursor to the ballpoint pen. right? He's got an ink horn, so he can write. Okay, And he tells this guy, he tells this particular one, he says, Go throughout the city and mark, put a mark on the forehead of all the ones who are mourning and weeping over the idolatry of the city. Okay, so he says, if I can paraphrase, The Lord says to this guy, Go mark the foreheads of everyone who is still faithful, everyone who is grieved about the idolatry taking place in the temple and Jerusalem. So that's what he does. He goes about and he marks them, and everybody who doesn't have this mark are killed. Now, I find it very interesting That these people who are spared, who are faithful, receive a mark on their forehead. This plays a very important role in the book of Revelation. Very important role. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 3, the 144,000 receive a mark on their forehead that seals them. It's a sign. It's a seal. Uh, that they are the Lord's. In chapter 9, verse 4 of Revelation, those with the mark on their forehead, and it's talking about the 144,000, are exempt from the judgment of the fifth trumpet. In chapter 13, verse 16, the false prophet uses a mark on the forehead for those who are going to buy and sell on the earth so isn't that interesting up to this point this mark on the forehead is something that indicates some type of faithfulness to the Lord a servant of the Lord something like that and then the false prophet takes it and turns it around and counterfeits it which by the way we know this is how Satan operates right he takes good things that the Lord gives things that uh, we see that the Lord does, and He counterfeits it. That's why we have Christ and the Antichrist, because He's very much a, the Antichrist is very much a Messianic figure. I mean, it's like He is a Messiah, but He's just an anti-Messiah. In chapter 14, verse 1, we see that the mark on the forehead of the 144,000 is the name of the Father. The name of the Father. In uh, chapter 14, verse 9, the mark of the beast uh, means, if you took the mark of the beast, it means you're going to receive the wrath of God, not the deliverance of God. And finally, in chapter 22, verse 4, the name of God is put on the foreheads of all those in the eternal state. So those of you who would never think about getting a tattoo, when you get to the eternal state, it seems like everybody's going to have a tattoo on their forehead. <laughs> so you're going, the, you're going to have this mark on your forehead in the eternal state. Now I think it's very interesting because this mark of the beast... It said is to be the number and the name of the beast. Number and name. And it, and it says in chapter 14, verse 1, that the mark on the forehead of the 144,000 is the name of God. It's the name of the Father. So, what's the name of the Father? Yahweh. That's his name. So, the mark of the beast is a name and a number. And uh, if if you ever want to try to think about something that you can't come to a conclusion on, we know the number of the beast is six six six. It's interesting if you you know Hebrew doesn't have numbers, letters equal numbers, so that you know certain letters equal certain numbers, certain letters equal a ten tens, certain letters equal hundreds. That's how they, that's how they work it. Greek isn't like that when Greek doesn't have numbers either, but Greek writes its numbers out. There's no symbols, it doesn't use symbols for those numbers. And uh, the the number um, of the beast, if you just try to do the alphabetic value for 666, it possibly has something to do with the idea of a veil. Some you know someone who veils. I would think if that's got anything to it, it might be that the antichrist veils the truth from people. Veils. This is exactly what Satan does in uh, Second Corinthians chapter four. puts a veil over the eyes of people so that they won't believe the truth. Um, so it's interesting to think about, but. Anyway, we see that the glory of the Lord has moved. And in chapter 10, chapter ten, verses 1 through 17, I'm not going to read that, but the glory of the Lord is at the threshold preparing to leave. We see in verse 4, it says, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub, and my Bible inserts, and paused over the threshold of the temple. Okay, so... It's it's stating where the glory is. Now in verses five and eleven, verse five it describes the sound of wings. When do wings make sounds? When they're moving. When it's got these wheels that are moving. So I think all this is preparing for movement here, the movement of the glory of the Lord. And as we get to verses 18 through 22, we see that the glory of the Lord departs. Verse 18, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. Stood over the cherubim there. So the glory of the Lord departs. And he's going to depart the city. Um... So in the picture, the picture here is that the glory of the Lord is going to go out the east gate. And so as we come to chapter 11, we see that in chapter 11 in verses 1 through 13 that judgment is announced. Now that the glory of the Lord has departed, judgment is announced as coming. Ezekiel, we are told, is now at the East Gate. I think he followed the glory of the Lord to the East Gate. Um, this is where the glory of the Lord left the city was at the east Gate, and judgment is announced against the leaders who led the nation astray. And this judgment is not just um, punishment but it's revelatory. And verse 12, after it talks about this punishment, verse 12 it says, And you shall know I am the Lord. So I'm going to punish you. This is what the Lord says to Israel I'm going to punish you because of your idolatry, and you shall know I am the Lord. So, in other words, you're going to know what I said was true all the way back in Deuteronomy. You're going to know I'm the Lord. I'm real. I'm the one true and living God. And um, because of this punishment, Ezekiel's very concerned. He's concerned that Israel is going to cease to exist. Look at verse 13. And it happened that while I was prophesying that Pelitia, the son of Benaiah, died. So that's the first guy who suffers the punishment. Right? He's immediately killed. Okay. Then I fell on my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? Are you going to kill us all? Are you going to wipe out the nation? So he's very concerned about that. But then in verses 14 through 21, the re- restoration of Israel is predicted. The restoration is predicted. And... Um, I'll come back here and pick up next week. But just notice the language here in verses 14 through 21 is new covenant language. This is language about the new covenant. So a good cross-reference, if your Bible doesn't already put it here, is Jeremiah 31, 31. And then finally, in verses 22 through 23, we see that the glory of the Lord moves from the midst of the city to the Mount of Olives. So, again, the glory of the Lord has totally left Jerusalem, and now Jerusalem is open for judgment. But in the midst of this judgment language, the Lord says, because of Ezekiel's concern, the Lord says, I'm going to restore the nation." I'm going to restore the nation, but this is how I'm going to restore the nation in in verses 14 through 21. Okay, that's uh, all that we got time for this evening. So let me pray, and uh, we'll be finished. And, of course, we take any comments or questions after that. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for this time that we've had together. We pray that... um, uh, this would bring fruit in our lives and our understanding of you and your word, and we pray this in Christ's name, Amen. So, questions or comments? We're gonna. I'm gonna go back and pick.